all you heroes, hawks, heralds, crows, pirates, and wardens. Welcome to the Dragon Age Lorecast, where we unpack, discuss, and galaxy brain about all the lore behind the Dragon Age series. We are so excited to bring you this podcast. Every episode, we'll be talking about a different topic in the Dragon Age universe, from character deep dives to exalted marches and elven gods. We will cover it all. There will be spoilers. And always remember, swooping is bad. Hello and welcome to the Assassin. Hello and welcome to the Dragon Age Lorecast, where we talk about Dragon Age and its lore. My name is Austin, also known as Teacup, and I'm here with my lovely co-host. I'm Sheikup or Shelby, and I'm definitely keeping that blooper in the show, Austin. <laughs> okay. Awesome. Gonna confuse our listeners. They're gonna be like, wait, why? Oh, it's just Austin back on his bullshit. <laughs> what's new in life i mean you're always on right. some kind of bs it's true so we're back after our lovely patron chat to go back into our kind of deep dive into the evan yeah i'm really excited to get back into it we're actually kind of rounding out um and coming into the last few we we do have one that's going to be a, a two-part episode coming up soon i'm sure you can guess who that might be um but today we are talking about fallon den who may be more one of the more um could you say unknown of the Evanuris? yeah um i know a very little about him other than like our very brief overview that we did way back when when we first started the podcast um and i mean i know about his brother because we visit one of his temples in dragon age inquisition but i don't know a lot about fallowton yeah well the first thing to know about him is that it's fallon den there is an n in there um but Let's just dive right into the fun facts and get going. So the first thing to know is that, interestingly enough, he is also associated with the owl as a symbol. And as you may know, if you listened to our Andrew episode, Andrew also is associated with the owl as a symbol. So we kind of have the owl doing double duty here. I don't know if, you know, maybe back in the day of, of Arlathon and Elvenon, the owl, um, it kind of was different types of owls, different species of owls uh, for each of them. We don't really know. We just know that the owl was a symbol of both of them. Um, but let's get into the next fun fact, which is something that's going to come back. Um, and there is an interesting statue, and I think the Emerald Graves. And it is of a man who has really long hair. This hair, suspiciously, covers his ears, so we can't verify if he's an elf or a human. But the man is, like, sternly pointing at an unknown subject. And it's often thought in lore that the statue is of Falun Den, though we don't know why it was built. 
We don't know what the meaning of it is, and we don't really even have any confirmation that it is indeed of Fallon Den. However, we do have a few more statues of him, which we'll get into a little bit later. Now, another interesting thing is that you can find a unique longbow in Dragon Age Origins named Falandin's Reach. It can be found in the Dragon's Horde in the Brazilian Ruins. What's interesting to me is that this is named Falandin's Reach when we just spoke of a statue talking about Falandin reaching and pointing out into the abyss. It's just an interesting connection. And then lastly, but certainly not least, is that Falandin is said to be the oldest child of Mithal and Elgernon, followed shortly thereafter with Durthamon. A lot of interesting things. Um, I don't have a lot about thoughts about the fun facts, other than they are fun and interesting. There's nothing that like poops up and like, oh, this is a great fan theory, but I'm excited to get into it. Mainly because I know what Fallon Den's domain is, which is related to death. And I find Gods of the Dead very interesting. So, yeah, you do. I will say as a as a player in several of your DM campaigns, you do have a tendency to bring in Gods of Death. So speaking of that. Let's just dive right in. So we've already come out and said it. Falandin is the god of death in the Dragon Age um, Elven lore universe. However, that's not all he is. He's also the god of the dead. And I think that those are two separate things. Once again, we have um, multiple domains associated with one god because you can be the god of death, the god of dying, like the Grim Reaper, so to speak, but... I do think that that is a little bit distinct, related, of course, from being the god of the dead. Like, I, I, there's just a little bit of a difference there. I don't right. know what you think. Um, well, the Greeks definitely noticed a difference because Hades is god of the underworld and of the dead. Thanatos is god of death. And so he, like, guards in some mythology. In some of the mythology, he like guards the gates of death to make sure that the dead stay dead. And so it's interesting that like Hades obviously is the overarching thing, but there is a separate embodiment for the god of death versus dead. Um, yeah, absolutely. So in addition to those two things, he is also the one that is said to guide the dead to the beyond, which is beyond the fade. It's kind of like the afterlife in this universe. Um, so those are kind of the three things he oversees. He oversees death. He oversees the dead. And he oversees the process of transporting a person's soul or an elf's soul from the real world of Thetis to the beyond. Those are three important things. However, there's more. <laughs> um, he's also said to be the god of fortune. We're not really sure why. We don't have a ton of info on that one. Um, but in addition to that, he's also said to be a master scryer. So he kind of, if you don't know what scrying is, it's basically like not quite seeing the future, but it's like seeing into other people's lives and seeing what's happening 
right then and there, seeing what people are doing, kind of not invading people's lives, but like being able to know what a person is doing. Think omniscience, if you will. Yeah. Or if you are like us fans of the inheritance cycle, when they scry something, you can only scry what you have seen or Mm -hmm. things you know. Um, which is a limitation, but you're scrying typically the presence and the present, not presence, present versus like, there's a lot of discussion of like, no, you can't scry the past and you can't scry the future. Right. That would be a different spell. And I think the, mm-hmm. does the act of scrying come from D&D or is it maybe something older than that? I don't know if you know off the top of your head. Um, it's definitely older because it is... Um, just in general forms of it's a form of magic that is present in a lot of mythologies and though it is prevalent in D and it functions in a similar way of like you are not you are looking at the present the D description of the scrying spell is a good description of that but i'm not gonna read that uh, you can look that yeah, up we, yeah we don't need to get too far into it but Anyway, so Falandin is said to be a master scryer, which we will double check on that, I think, in a, a few minutes. But let's get into his names. So um, I know that, like, in the past couple weeks, we've had some Evanuris that are just, like, one or two names, and that's it. So we've had a break from the ones who have multiple. But it's just really interesting to me that of the Evanuris that have these multiple names, um, and like abundant names, like four, five, six names, they're the ones that are closest to Elgernon and Mithal, who also have a ton of names associated with them. Falandin has four, whereas Siles and Junae, who we talked about, um, I think in Junae's episode with Katie, like they're very much like the outcasts of the Evanuris. They're the in-laws and they have one or two names. So it's just another interesting dichotomy between the kind of two groups of the Evanuris. So um, some of Falandin's names, these are Friend of the Dead, The Guide, The Merciful One, and then lastly, we have another one called Lethanavir, which I'm, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, but if you know, I, if, if you know that I am pronouncing it incorrectly, please let me know. Um, so you may be interested in this last name. You may be like, Shelby, I don't know what that means. You said that like I'm supposed to know what it means. Um, but let me tell you, because I also had never heard this before. So I had to do some major researching into this one. So according to the Elven Prayer for the Dead item description, this item is a gift item from Dragon Age Origins Awakening for Valana specifically, Lethanavir's translation is friend to the dead. So Fenex Sheral on Tumblr argues that this is more of a poetic translation and that a more literal translation might be kin of death or even kin of the inevitable way as death is inevitable. Whereas the translation of Falun Din would be the actual literal translation of Friend of the Dead, Lathanavir is simultaneously a poetic way to say that as well as both a title and, as we've mentioned, a poetic interpretation. Now, as a reminder, Fenex Sheral is the one that does the Elven translations over on Tumblr. Great blog. Go check her out. Um, 
But it's just really an interesting situation here where we have something that is so obscure in the lore going back to a DLC from the first game that we're now mentioning about Faladin later on. So um, it's just it's just interesting to me. Do you have thoughts? You look like you're furiously Googling something. I just it remind the word reminds me so much of an elvish word from Tolkien's world, Mithrandir, which is one of Gandalf's titles, um, which I think yeah. means something similar to like friend, or maybe it is Grey Wanderer or something like that. But I can't remember exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's interesting to me this kind the thing that it means the Grey Pilgrim, the Grey Wanderer. Uh, um, Mithrandir means the grand yes. pilgrim. Uh huh. And so, what's interesting to me is the one kind of the inevitable way talking about death. But I think it's also interesting and a point to bring out that we've had two other gods or Evanuris who have ways associated with them. Like I believe um, it was Silas who had the way of peace, and then. Andriel had like the way of the arrow or the way of the three trees or something or the path of the three trees. And I think there's another one too, but yeah, you're absolutely right. Right. Um, and so I just think that's interesting. The inevitable kin of the inevitable way. Like I think there is, I think there is something that we can see here among the Evanuris to their followers of like, it's not just worshiping them, but like committing to a particular, idealistic lifestyle like maybe you're not always achieving this lifestyle but this is the ideal that these followers strive for Mm -hmm. yeah and i absolutely agree with that and there absolutely is the possibility in lore both from a um cynical perspective of us outside thinking about the developers right like there's the possibility that they add in more ways for different evaneris who don't have one later on right and also in lore, if we're looking at it from an in-universe perspective, there's absolutely also the possibility that the ways of these other elven gods may have been lost over time. Yes, uh, but I like I like the idea of like these gods having these disciplines, but then the god of death being like, well, I'm the kin of the inevitable way because this is where you all end up. Death is unavoidable. But it's interesting to me, and another thing that it's interesting, a group of people who used to have like really long lifespans and like how they, how that colors a creation of a god of death versus, you know, in humanity, if we really want to talk about it, like relatively short lifespans in the grand Mm -hmm. scheme of time. Yeah. And I also think it's important to remember that, like, I think that Thalandin and Fenharel have a lot in common, because if you think about your point, Uthanera is not something that all elves get to achieve. Uthanera is something that the wealthy elves get to achieve because they have the money to make sure that their bodies are cared for. They have the money to pay for a tomb. They have a mon- the money to rent that, t- that space out for time immemorial. Um, elven slaves don't have the money, financial 
status, anything like that to do to do that. And so I think that there is a lot of crossover here with Fallon Den and Finn Harrell because when you think about death, Fallon Den is going to be the he, there's just a, a more likelihood statistically that he is going to be transporting more elves who are poor, elves who do not have status and class and wealth into the beyond because they're going to be dying more than the wealthy elves who have entered into Uthanera. Um, and so, as we know, Solas Fenharel is also concerned with these lower class elves. And so I think that there is definitely some crossover and potential there for them to have a little bit of commonality. I agree, which makes what I'm assuming is going to come up later and we'll get to, but like Solus's comments on Fallon, Fallon Den, all the more interesting. Yeah. Yeah. We'll get there. Um, so, okay, let's talk about the constellation real quick. So the constellation Ten Tenebrium or Tenebrium is associated with Falandin. This constellation, again, is said to depict an owl who among Thedosian society is often nicknamed as Shadow. Interestingly enough, it's also thought that this constellation may also be associated with the old god of night, Lusicon. The Codex argues, however, that the Falandin Association is an older one, since this constellation has never, it said never, been interpreted as a dragon. So this is one where a lot of times in the Codex entries for the other Evanuris or for the other constellations, they always say something like, this may have been associated with the Evanuris or Elves claim that this was associated with this member of the Evanuris, but everyone else denies that. However, with this one, interestingly enough, it's like, oh, no, this one's probably legit. So that's another instance of Fallon Den being a little bit different from the rest of the Evanuris. And I think that that's something important to highlight. Right. Um, it could just be a simple uh, point of no one catching like a consistency among codex writing because we do know that there are like multiple writers to codex um yes there is absolutely that um but yeah we just don't know it is interesting um i just want to note that i could have told you that by its name alone that it would have been associated with some type of god of death because it is directly like derived from the Latin word for darkness. Which is tenebris, right? Yeah, tenebris or tenebrae. Okay. Yeah, interesting. Um, okay, so let's get into temples, statues, all that kind of fun stuff. Where shrines to Falandin are located. So we know that he did have a temple, but we don't know, or at least we don't know yet, where it was or is. However, he has a ton of depictions in statues, more than any other elven god. We have depictions, multiple depictions of Falandin throughout multiple games. Typically, this occurs via statues. Um, he has actually even been depicted in a couple different positions as the man pointing, which we mentioned earlier, and as an owl, and there are others as well. So some of the ones we know of for sure 
is we have a statue of Fallon Din in the Elven Ruins in Origins. We have a statue of Fallon Din pointing sternly in the Emerald Graves, which we mentioned in the fun facts. We have a statue of Fallon Din pointing sternly in the Fade. And we have a statue of an owl named the Guide of Fallon Din in Crestwood. He likes to point. He does. And I think it's it's such an interesting marker or identifier. I'm not really sure what the right word is to use, but it's like to me it's it's just it's just curious because you would think, at least I would think that like a pointing statue would be like the elven god of knowledge, like a professor type, uh, a teacher type, even the mother type like Mithal or Siles. Mm-hmm. But instead we have it associated with the god of death. And so to me, it takes on a much more of an effect of almost like Falandin cursing you. Like you're up next. You know what I mean? Um, right. Um, it gives very much like if y'all remember from the Ahsoka show when we see those big statues of the ones or like the Mortis gods. And the father is like sternly pointing like that's what I imagine. Like I associate like with this like sternly pointing on this thing of like judgment of standing in like accusation of this, which is sometimes associated with gods of death because they often are also judges like Osiris and Anubis being judges of the dead as well in mm-hmm. Egyptian mythology. Like it it is interesting, but like Fallon Din, he doesn't necessarily. I know we're going to get into this a little bit, but he doesn't necessarily judge the dead. Mm-hmm. That's not really Correct. his role. Yeah, it's 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 just again, this is a mix mash of lore, and these are the questions we're finding. But let's move on to his Valisline. So, um. The simple version of Fallon Den's Valisleen basically looks like a tree trunk in between the eyes, and then the branches extend onto the forehead, and the roots go down the nose and around the mouth and chin. The complex version builds onto this, adding branches and roots throughout the rest of the face, um, which I think is also interesting because he's not really associated with nature like at all, um, but this is very nature-esque in my opinion. Right. It's also, like, interesting that, like, some of the Valisleen are, like, viney and, like, almost flowery, but not really flowery. But, like, it's it's less, like, tree branches. It's more, like, vines and stuff like that. Leaf kind mm-hmm. of stuff. But, like, Fallon Den gets this branches kind of thing, which is interesting because, like, trees in various mythology signify sometimes they signify knowledge they signify like a connection to the like basic or the fancy theological word is like the primordial the very like basic the foundational stuff Mm -hmm. that is around us like you know yggdrasil is the world tree it is the foundation of the nine realms it connects everything so here we get this but this is a god of something that is inescapable like death happens death comes for us all and it's also this very like in most mythology like the god of death and dead is so important because it's such a it's 
it's functional to how the world works. Everything dies. Everything is born, yeah. created, and everything dies. It's integral to the universe. Uh-huh. So let's get into Falandin's reputation among the Evanuris. And this is interesting, fascinating to me, because there are a lot of different things he's known for. Um, and he does actually have a few notable relationships among the Evanuris to mention. So I think the first one, and you can probably guess, is his relationship with his twin, Dirthamon. Most notably, definitely. They were seen as twin souls. And in the lore, it's actually, again, fascinating because there is a discrepancy. There's a disagreement in the lore and universe because a lot of people, most people, I think, believed that they were actually twins, actually birthed of, of Mithal and Elgernon. While others say they actually had no blood relation at all and their souls were just twins, but they were not in blood relation. Um, and the oldest elven stories from the time of Elvenon, like going back all the way, never mentioned them separately. So there have been many times in the Lord so far this season where we've said, oh, actually, like this is newer or this wasn't mentioned in the oldest stories, like with June, perhaps. However, this time, this is one where we can explicitly say Thalandin and Durthamon have always been associated with one another. So I think that's interesting because it leads to my next point, which is that we always see them referred to as mirrors of one another, maybe even foils in some situations. So um, what's interesting in terms of their names is that in the earliest times of Elvenon and Arlathon, Falandin was known as Durthamon's shadow and Durthamon was known as Falandin's reflection. So they actually kind of switch names over the course of time, which is so interesting. Um, but we don't really know why they've always been associated with one another. We don't know what makes them specifically so similar. We just know that they've always been associated with each other. And we do have a little bit of a, a childhood story, which we'll talk about in a little bit. So in addition to Durtham, we do have more. We have a tale about Falandin arguing with Elgernon, and their argument was so potent, so fierce, that Mithal finally had to step in. And she suggested that instead of Falandin and Elgernon continuing to fight one another themselves, they should instead send a knight in their stead to fight one another. And so they do listen to Mithal, and that's a good thing because the lore suggests and implies that this argument probably would have led to a civil war among the Evanuris. In the end, Falandin's knight did lose to Elgernon's, so Elgernon wins this battle. But Solus goes on to continue, and or Solus goes on to claim that Falandin's vanity, even though he lost, his vanity was immense. It was so great. So much was his desire to have followers, to amass worshipers, to be seen as like the pinnacle of elven piety and worship that he started endless wars, basically, to gain more and more followers. And you might be thinking, well, if he's killing people, why is he getting more followers? You have to remember, because he's the god of death. So the more people die, the more people follow him, as is just natural. So 
in this, Falandin basically would kill everyone who refused to bow to him. And it's only when Mithal and the other Evanuris finally rally together and attack him in his temple that he finally surrendered. I did bring a quote from I did bring a quote from Solus in when you ask him about, you know, the elven gods or whatever, about this same situation. And so this is what Solus says. I do not believe they sing songs about Falandin's vanity. It is said Falandin's appetite for adulation was so great that he began wars to amass more worshippers. The blood of those who wouldn't bow low filled lakes as wide as oceans. Mithal rallied the gods once in the shadow of Falandin's hunger stretched across her own people. It was almost too late. Falandin only surrendered when his brethren bloodied him in his own temple. Do you have thoughts about this? So this is really interesting because, and I don't know if this is an actual mythology or not, but like one of the points and like the big like plot twist in the Lightning Thief, the Percy Jackson series is that Hades stole the Master Bolt, blamed Poseidon so that he could start a war that would gain him more power. In reality, it's not Hades who is doing this it's chronos who has stolen the master bolt because he's trying to get the olympians to fight themselves and so i'm curious like what is like the half truth that solace is you know mentioning here because we do have to acknowledge that his writer has says that he does not directly lie solace never directly lies but what is the half truth and like i think a quote from solace himself is a point of like how he dances in these half truths which is when he talks about the siege of ostagar and he talks about in one say i see you know the jealous Logain like vying for power or whatever and in the other thing i see a cautious general who's not willing to lose any more men on a boy king's Mm -hmm. wish of glory or something like that like and, and like is this Solus's interpretation was Falandin set up could Solus have set this up and presented in some way like just because Solus says this is what's happened doesn't mean that that's the full truth that we're getting there might have been a point where there was thought that Falandin was going to kill a bunch of followers and gain power and the Evaners did come up and beat him up but the reasoning for why that might be where we're getting this half truth. Yeah, I think that's a great uh, point to throw out. And we don't really know. I think there are a lot of different ways this could be taken. You know, this could have started as an Evanuris civil war and others abandoned him and then they all attacked him. You know, it, it could be not this intense at all. And and Falandin is just trying to, like, save the people. Who knows? Um, I think there are, are lots of different ways that it could go in regards to Solus maybe not telling the whole truth. But regardless of that, I think that it establishes an important personality point for Fallon Den because there's no way that he would do any of this without being vain at some level. Mm-hmm. So we can we can say Fallon Den's vanity was great, regardless of of whether or not Solus is misrepresenting part of this one story. So we've established that he has some significant relationships with Dirthamon, Elgernon, Mithal, and Fenharel, even. So 
That's important to note. But we also have a few songs that are ascribed to him. And we'll talk about this and then we'll go to our mid-break. So the first one comes from the Codex, appropriately, Song to Fallon Din. And it says this. The people swore their lives to Fallon Din, who mastered the dark that lies, whose shadows hunger, whose faithful sing, whose wings of death surround him thick as night. Lathanavir, master scryer, be our guide through shapeless worlds and airless skies, end quote. And that comes from that codex, and you can find it in the Temple of Mithal. So do you have thoughts about this first song in particular? Does any part of it stand out to you? It just... The part that stood out to me in this song was who mastered the darkness that lies. Um, and I am immediately called to uh, here lies the abyss, the well of all souls from these emerald waters doth life begin anew. Come to me, child, I shall embrace you in my arms lies yes. eternity, which is from the Canta Canticle of Enderaste. That's what I thought of, too. And so, but it's interesting, the dark that lies, and there's a lot of comparisons in that here lies the abyss kind of section of the Canticle of Andraste. But I think it's interesting that in this song of uh, the people swore their lives to Fallon Din, who mastered the dark that lies, and then here lies the abyss, which we tend to think of, of an abyss as a bottomless cavern that is surrounded in darkness. And so... But in Andraste's version, it's all associated with life. Like, here's where life begins anew. And here we are with, like, this very, like, dark kind of stuff, like, guiding to the death, which we know because of that's where it is. Um, I think this intends, like, there's probably a connection, kind of a yin-yang kind of life and death are two sides of the same coin here. That's probably being emphasized in the lore, mm -hmm. but I found that very interesting. Yes, me too. Okay, so on to the next one, which is actually the last one. So the first one was from the Song to Falandin Codex, and this one is from the Falandin Codex, the general one. So um, it says, it begins actually with this. O Falandin, Lathanavir, friend to the dead, guide my feet, calm my soul, lead me to my rest. And so the thing I find interesting is truly just the difference between these two songs. Like this one is so peaceful. It's so serene. It's like mystical almost like I'm ready. It's my time. Let me go. Whereas the other one mm -hmm. is almost warlike. It's very spy. It's very assassin's creed almost like could fit into that universe too and so mm -hmm. it's just very interesting to me the difference i totally agree in this and it's interesting to me because to me when i read these who i feel like these are written by someone who is dying before they're ready versus someone who has accepted the reality of death that it's an escape like there are two views of how we as mortals as humans view death the deal with the idea that we're going to be finite like there's a lot of fear associated with that but on a lot of ways like especially if you're talking to someone who has you know is older and like and i'm talking like 90s like late 80s 90s all that kind of stuff they talk about like 
you know, like death is something that they deal with and that there's an acceptance of that, of like, I'm not afraid of this because I know it's coming and there's nothing I can do to stop this. But I hope that there is. So I'm going to have as much peace in this process as I possibly can. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a great point that these two are coming from people who have different reactions and feelings on their deaths. Absolutely love it. Completely agree. No notes. So on that mm-hmm. note, let's go to the mid-break. Yeah. So you like to read. What's wrong with that? It's frivolous. There are more important things for me to do. That's just her favorite. Nobody asked you to winter. <laughs> I couldn't finish the last one you lent me. I actually feel dumber for having tried. It's literature. Smutty literature. Whatever you do, don't tell Varric. Mm, no offense, but might I try? I've got a quick hand, after all. Ha, let's see. Oh, when was the last time I slipped my hand into some dark hole? Hmm. I remember a long story, that. You hurt my head sometimes, Solas. Yes. I have been known to do that. So welcome to the middle of the show where we take time to thank our patrons. Thank you to all of our patrons. Uh, Thank you to our first patrons, Genesis and Lisa M. Uh, We also have a new patron or a returning patron uh, in uh, Akalia. Is that how I'm going to say that? Uh, Welcome back. And then Julian C. Welcome to our Patreon. Also, uh, if you want to join our Patreon, you can do so at patreon.com slash DALorecast. If you can't do that, that's okay. Uh, A great way to support us is to leave us ratings and reviews. And if you leave us five stars and some kind words, we'll read it out on a future episode of the show. And so we do have a review or a comment from Spotify to read today. This comes from a June uh, episode with uh, Katie from the Split the Veil podcast by LSFMX. It says, you really pranked me with this one, zoned out for two seconds during the intro, and then Katie's voice came up, and I was like, wrong show. Anyway, so excited we finally got to June. So many possibilities. Heart emoji. Thank you so much for that comment. I do think June is very, very interesting. I have actually found the outside of Elgernon and Mythal some of the most interesting uh, Eveners, so I definitely agree with all the possibilities of June. Uh, lastly, you can join the, well, not lastly, but second to last, uh, you can join the Discord server, uh, Cups Podcasting and more. You can come hang out with us, talk about Dragon Age, talk about how we're all going to maybe put on clown makeup this summer if we might get, if Dragon Age Dreadwolf is indeed happening or coming out, maybe. I am, uh, what was, I forgot what the phrase, we had a phrase that we came up with, uh, not cautiously optimistic, but um what was it? Cautiously open-minded. No, cautiously oh, yeah, open-minded. Yeah. <laughs> I think I'm more pessimistically uh, open-minded, frankly, but sure. <laughs> yes. Um, but yeah, but come talk to about, share your Dragon Age woes or fan theories with us on that Discord server. And lastly, this is a new announcement, and we are so excited about this. We have launched a merch shop. So a online store that you can go and get tea or teacups i'm teacup you can't buy me i'm sorry you can't you can't buy me (laughs) 
but you can get t-shirts, you can get coffee mugs, you can get sweatshirts, hats, all kinds of stuff going on there. So a lot of awesome designs. Uh, one of Shelby's personal favorite is the Lord Seeker Lambert Hate Club. Uh, we do know that she hates that. Plus, we obviously made a t-shirt with Swooping is Bad on there. Uh, Grey Warden Athletic Department tees and sweatshirts and so much more. Uh, we're launching this for both podcasts, so Assassin's Creed merch is on there too. Uh, you can check that out at thecupspodcasting.com. That's it. Abominations are always so awkward at family reunions. Have you ever seen an abomination? They are ugly. Dorian, those words you say, what do they mean? What, do you mean like mendicant? Ultimatum? No arse when you're mad. Vishanti Kofas. You're swearing, I know it. Vishanti Kofas. It's Tavine, relics of the old tongue. We still use the colourful phrases. And it means what? Literally, you shit on my tongue. <laughs> You fear barbarians will swoop down upon you. Yes, swooping is bad. All right, so let's talk about the Dalish. So, you know, we always have something to say about those pesky Dalish, um, but we actually have quite a bit today. So in Dalish Legends, like I mentioned earlier, there is that discrepancy between whether Falandin and Durthamon are twins, whether they're just like twin souls, whatever. The Dalish, they do believe they're twins. Um, they have a couple old legends that say, oh, they were just really close friends. But despite that, almost unanimously, the Dalish believe that they are siblings and twins. And they also believe that these two are the eldest two children of Mithal and Elgernon. Now, other legends, like we've discussed, talk about the closeness of the twins, specifically that they were inseparable from birth and into their adulthood as well. In the Durthamon Codex entry, we get a really interesting story about how they got separated. And I put this into the Dalish section because this Codex entry is written by Gisharel, who tells a lot of um, the Codex entries that have to do with elves and elven lore. So... I'm going to just read this whole section and then we can discuss at the end. So this is what the Codex says. One day while passing through the forest, Falandin and Durthamon came across an old and sickly deer resting beneath a tree. Why do you sit so still, little sister? asked Falandin. Play with us, said Durthamon. Alas, spoke the deer, I cannot. I am old, and although I wish to go to my rest, my legs can no longer carry me. Taking pity upon the deer, Falandin gathered her up into his arms and carried her to her rest beyond the veil. Durthamon tried to follow them, but the shifting gray paths beyond the veil would not let him. End quote. The Codex continues on a bit later and says this. When Durthamon finally found Falandin, he found also the deer, who once again was light on her feet, for her spirit was released from her weakened body. Both Falandin and Durthamon rejoiced to see this. Falandin vowed that he would remain to carry all the dead to their place beyond, just as he did the deer. And Durthamon stayed with him, for the twins cannot bear to be apart. Okay, so thoughts, impressions... Bannons, anything you got, hit me. 
I have two things that just kind of like raise an eyebrow. I don't know if they could count them as phantoms, but just raise an eyebrow. And it's the phrase of an association of a deer. And then the little sister line. Because Mm -hmm. could this be representation of Gillanon? Like, I know that there are actual deer in Thetis versus Hala. Hala, Sorry. Um, I get all this. Um, This story reminds me a lot of, like, how Andriel finds Gillanon, how, you know, like, both of these stories in association with these two gods of Gillanon and Andriel, they just, they read similar. They're not the same, but they do read uh, similar. I like the idea that, like, I like the story in the sense of, like, Falandin finding his purpose and, like, the reason he is separated from Durthamin is not, like, a falling out or a conflict between the two, but it's just that, like, one found their purpose and the other could not follow. Um, mm-hmm. Which is sad in its own way, but that's a reality that we sometimes face in our relationships and other things like that. Especially with our siblings. Mm-hmm. Um but we'll get into a little bit more about Durtheman next week. Um, this is not the entirety of this codex. We'll read more from it next week. But the things that I think are interesting about this is, number one, agree completely the association, potential association with Gilanon. Because we've already established she has like 3,000 creation myths for herself, right? Well, here's another one you could you could argue. Um, but even more than that, I think is interesting the implication that Balandin is not just transporting the elves to the beyond. He's also transporting animals. So I wonder if that suggests he's transporting every dead spirit or soul. Which would also include if if he was alive today, but during you know, before the El- before the Evanuris are, are are banished, when humans and dwarves um, are alive on Thetis, was he responsible for transporting them as well? I think it's an ambiguous question. I don't think we have an answer because there's no way we would have that information. But with this codex, I definitely think you can make that argument. Mm-hmm. I def- that's really interesting. I have more about that that I want to make a comparison later, but I want to get through like all the stuff before I do because it's it's related, but it's it, it'll lead to a whole different conversation. Okay, well, let's move on uh, because I have another thing I want to say about this codex, and then we'll pretty much be close to the end. So, um, another thing I wanted to talk about with this codex is that I think it could potentially suggest. Um, a, something about Uthanera. So we know from the books that Uthanera was not applicable to all the elves because you had to be able to afford to be preserved in the eternal sleep, like I mentioned earlier. But regardless, the Dalish believe that Falandin visited the elders when they were in Uthanera. Durthamin would go with him. And so these were very much journeys of enlightenment for both of them, as well as for the elders. And so then when the quickening began is when Falandin started carrying them to the beyond and into death. And 
because of the Evanuris's banishment by Fen Harel, the Dalish do believe that Falandin is no longer able to guide them from the world of Thetis and into the Fade and beyond. So in order to prevent those who have died from getting lost in the afterlife, the Dalish, they bury their dead with an oak staff and a cedar branch. And they also invoke the name of Falandin on their deathbeds or before quests from which they expect they're not going to return. I just think this is so interesting how the Dalish have like formed their mythologies around the banishing of the Evanuris. And it's like we have almost two sets of canon here with like, yes, we have the whole Falandin and um, you know, meeting this deer and and transporting all the elves. And then they also have to come up with secondary reasons for why none of these gods are no longer around. And I just think that that's so interesting. Um, and specifically that the Dalish, they bury their dead with the oak staff and a cedar branch so that they can find Falandin. And we have nothing in the lore other than just general elves being associated with nature to tell us why specifically an oak staff and a cedar branch. Um, this might also tie back into his Valisleen, not really sure, but I just think all of that is, is very interesting. Do you have thoughts? Yeah, it is interesting. It's the idea of like not being able to guide them back to where they need to rest because banishment and um, I think the thing about like that Fallon Den's own act of guiding the elven elven souls is what started the quickening. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's really interesting. Um, I can't I know that like certain trees and other stuff have been like associated with like funeral rites and other like cultures, but I can't. um remember what they are but i think cedar and oak are some of those that can be associated with death i an oak staff like from our sense like oak is a very sturdy wood like it's very like it's something that could carry you straight like so i get that like symbolism there like you give the dead that so that they have something firm and sturdy to anchor them to guide them Uh, i don't know the significance of cedar but I know that cedar is, um, it's used a lot in cooking. It's used um, because it has like a more fragrant um, smell than aroma than some of the other woods. It also has a really pretty color. There's lots of uses for cedar. But let's move on because I know we have some maybe theorizing to do. So I um, know you had something you wanted to mention with the Codex. And I also wanted to talk a little bit about Greek mythology. So I'm just kind of going to open the floor to you on whichever one of those you want to go for first. All right. So I'm going to start with like the in-universe thing that I want to talk about that has Mm -hmm. to do with the fact that... I don't want to leave this without talking about Falandin and the Mortalitasi. Okay. Yeah, for sure. Um, and just this idea of here are two places with the Navarran belief that like they have to guide the souls of the dead through the fade into spirits, like this idea of guiding these souls. And so I wonder if 
Saladin actually existed back to your codex thing of like, maybe this idea and this stuff that comes from the Mortalitasian, I know that they have their roots in Tevinter when they're founded. They're founded by a Tevinter mage. But perhaps that is because that, yes, Valandin took all the souls crossing the Fade um, before they were banished and other things like that. But I just think the like ideology of of Falandin guiding the souls in Dalish and the ideology that the Navaran death mages, the Mortalitasi have about that exact thing is a really big connection that is probably related. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And I know that there is conversations from Tevinter Knights and I think Inquisition, both where Solus, he has a lot of disdain for the Mortalitasi because they actively enslave spirits um, to do their bidding. Like, that's how they do what they do. And um, I'm just curious. I think this is another place that Fallon Din would agree with with Solus or Fenharel. Um, another instance of them having a little bit of commonality. Mm-hmm. So that was all that, like, I just wanted to, like, draw that comparison. Um, yeah, Just because there are, there are, other than, like, the Dalish thing, like, the Mortalitasi are the only, like, glimpse of burial rites that we get in Thetis outside of, like, the dwarfs and what they have to do. But. Well, we know that other humans burn their dead. Um, but, yeah. So, okay. The other thing that we want to talk about before we get into our side character is. We we kind of have to bring in some Greek mythology here. And so I know Austin is kind of more of the expert on this than me, for sure, because he was so obsessed with Percy Jackson as a kid. Um, but I think that there are two Greek gods that really um, come into play that have similarities with Falandin, and that is Charon and Hades. And I know we talked about Hades earlier. And so I am just going to let you do some comparing and contrasting between the three of them. Um, I think that Falandin isn't to compare him to Hades is probably not um, where I would compare him. If I was drawing a direct comparison, um, Chiron or Charon or Charon, it's, that CH is going to make a cuss sound. Uh, But he's more like a one-for-one comparison because he is the one who ferries the souls of the dead to the afterlife. And as far as we know, there is no Evanuris that is associated with ruling over the Fade, which is like the Fade or the Veil or whatever. Like, If there's anyone, it is Fenharel. Right. Um, and we haven't talked about him, and I know that like Ben Harrell is going to be a doozy of an episode for us to get through. Um, so just buckle up. But like Hades is the management of the he's the god of the underworld and the like the resting place of the souls of the dead. And so it's a similar thing of like he's not really in charge of making sure you die. He's in charge of managing and overseeing being the place you go when you die. Uh, and Fallon Den does not have that kind of power. He does not have that kind of influence. I think that it's really interesting the comparison. So I would comparison more for like uh, Chiron to 
get up there with like more of this fairy souls. I don't think he's a Hades character in the Pantheon. Yeah, I think I agree um, because you're right. He's not ruling over the beyond. He's, he's a car <laughs> like he's transporting the souls. Um, and so I do, I do agree with you. I think that that is distinct from the role that Hades plays. Um, it just is. So now that we've established that, let's get into our side character today, who is one of my favorites. And I know one of your favorites. We've been looking forward to this one for a really long time. And that would be Inquisitor Emeridan, who you do get to meet in Dragon Age Inquisition, the DLC um, Jaws of Hacken. So let's just dive right in. Feel free to stop me at any time if you have questions or things to add, because this one's really interesting and really lore heavy. So, um, Ameridan was the last Inquisitor of the Inquisition during the Divine Age. He oversaw the creation of many systems and groups that still exist in Thetis today, but we'll get into all that in a bit. Let's dive into who Ameridan was first. So, we don't actually get a full name. All we get is Ameridan or Inquisitor Ameridan. But we do know that he was a Dalish elf. Most Thedosians believe that he was a human. But we learn in Jaws of Hacken DLC, like I mentioned, that he was an elf. As a reminder, Ameridan lived during the Divine Age and the Ancient Age. The Divine Age is the First Age, so the 100s, whereas the Ancient Age is the entire time that came before. So he lived a really long time ago. And at the same time, Emperor Cordillus Draken I is creating his Orlesian Empire, and they are friends. Now, Here's something to add. I know a lot of people hate Draken. He's not, I'm not his biggest fan either, but I love Ameridan. And so I tend to give Draken a little bit, like a modicum of the benefit of the doubt, just because they were friends. And I feel like Ameridan would not have been his friend if he was like completely this horrible person. Um, but I, who knows? So let's get into some of Ameridan's other relationships. So like I said, He's besties with Draken, and that's why Draken appoints Ameridan to head up the Inquisition. Talana was an elven dreamer mage and also Ameridan's lover. Heron is a Templar, part of Ameridan's party. Orena is a dwarven alchemist who's also part of their party. And then lastly, we don't have a name, but they're often frequently accompanied by a spirit who was not feared. So that was kind of the makeup of their party, excluding Emperor Draken. Yeah, I just love the like full circle kind of like or like cyclical like pile of history that they're doing here because Ameridan has this such diverse group following him around and the Inquisitor and Dragon Age Inquisition is the same way. Like, mm -hmm. which, and I know that they used to say like the human was like intended to be the only choice, but in my in my brain, the Inquisitor is a Lavellan. Like the Dragon Age Inquisitor yes. is a Lavellan. Yes, wholeheartedly, yes. With how much Elven lore is just in the game, it just makes the most sense to me. Um, it just, it just does because, like, and I also think when you think about how Inquisition begins. Cassandra is literally imprisoning you. And 
I just find it a little bit more difficult to believe that a human in good standing with a noble family would be treated the same way as a nobody Dalish elf. Mm-hmm. I agree. So anyway, completely agree with you on that front, but that is not the subject here. So let's get into Ameriden's organizational affiliations because he has many. So we've already discussed that he was Inquisitor, but he was especially specifically appointed, appointed by Draken because he wanted a leader that would inspire loyalty rather than fear. He also wanted a leader who could unite different groups of people. Therefore, as an elf, Ameridan was asked and said yes. So, also, because Ameridan became the leader of the Inquisition as they officially joined the Chantry, Ameridan also has a prominent role within the Chantry. He is also the leader of the Inquisition when it splits into the Templar Order and the Seekers. We're not really given much information on his opinions of these two groups, but some speculated that he vanished from the public to overshadow so that he would not overshadow the newly formed Templar Order. We know that this isn't really true, uh, but that was the rumor in the universe at the time. And if you take Cassandra, when you do meet Ameridan, she asks him how the leader of the Seekers could be a mage. Ameridan explains that although most Inquisitors were Seekers, they did welcome the aid of mages and included them in their ranks for the purpose of hunting down demons and Maleficarum. If Cassandra has discovered the truth about the Seekers and the Rite of Tranquility, Ameridan reveals that he opposed the widespread use of tranquility out of fear that it would lead to abuse, but unfortunately, his fellow compatriots promised to prevent that from happening, which we know they did not do. So, kind of a heartbreaking story. If you're an elf, mm. you can also kind of update him about the elven plight in Thetis. He's heartbroken, mm -hmm. obviously, um, and it's just it's just a really sad conversation because there's so many things that he has no idea. I mean, he's been gone for almost a thousand years. Like, look at Captain America in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Like, he only been gone for like sixty years, and there's so much he had to catch up on. Imagine, imagine how difficult it is for a Meriden to miss a thousand years of history. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. He did not know Andraste, though. No, he is not old yeah. enough. Um, okay, so let's talk about his disappearance for a little bit. So, as we know, Ameridan is sent by Emperor Draken to the Frostback Basin on official business during the time of the Second Blight. He does this because the Frostbacks are resentful toward Orle and Ferelden about not halting or helping with the Blight. It turns out that the Avar and the Hakanites had summoned Hakan in the form of a high dragon to eradicate their enemies. You know this if you've played this DLC, but Ameridan seals the dragon and himself with Thai magic and they remain in stasis for a little over 800 years. This is how the Inquisitor then meets Ameridan. And like I just mentioned, there are some really interesting conversations you can have with him. If you are a Kunari Talvashoth, he literally doesn't even know what you are. Um, if you're an elf, like I just mentioned, um, you have the option to 
inform him about the fall of the Dales and Emperor Draken II's betrayal of the elves, at which he is grief-stricken. Um, but at the end, regardless, he does succumb to the ravages of time amidst the ending of the ritual, and so he does pass away. Mm. Now, the most interesting part, not maybe not the most interesting part, because this guy does so much, but one of the most interesting parts of inquisitor emeritus life is his faith and it's said in universe it is said that he was a very pious and faithful man in the lore but i think when this is said it's often only interp- interpreted as that he's an androstian he believes in androste but we know from the games from this dlc that Ameridan worshipped and honored both Andraste and the Evanuris, and that he specifically honored Gilanon above the other Evanuris. Um, we know this because he built a shrine in the Frostback Basin dedicated to both Gilanon and Andraste. And there's actually a prayer of Ameridan at this shrine. And this is what it says. I prepare now for my final battle against this dragon of the Avar. All is in place. I offer thanks to Gilanon, Hala Mother, and to Andraste, Maker Bride. As you were raised from as you were raised up from mortal men to stand with our creators, our makers, so raise me up now to defend this world. Thoughts and reflections on this. I'm really interested in the use of creators and makers in the plurals. Mm -hmm. Uh, Me too. Me too. Which I, I think is really, really interesting. Um, Offer thanks to Gilanon, Hala Mother, and Draste Maker Bride, um, using the terms from both cultures in this. And it's interesting to me, like, our creators, our makers, I think we can interpret this as, like, him coming to a point of like we have different deities we have different gods but we can work together which i think is a reflection on ameridan's life in general um then the task that he was given with the inquisition yeah. with hack and with everything um so i think that's probably what i don't think he's saying that like he's saying that like oh these are the same i think he's acknowledging i think in this prayer he is giving over and acknowledging an important of both that both are equally important to each other like to and the to people him. who follow that mm-hmm. yeah yeah and i absolutely think he probably really does believe in both andraste the maker mm-hmm. and the Evanuris. and i don't necessarily think there's anything in lore universe that prohibits this other than perhaps like the priestess the priests and the priestesses of each religion saying no you can't worship other gods like i mm-hmm. i think their lore you know it actually kind of does fit together pretty well and there's a lot of of similarities between andraste and different members of the evanura specifically mythal um and so I absolutely think both of these ideologies can coexist. And, and this is proof that they have coexisted. And I think also when you think about city elves over the years, of course, they're going to believe in both. Of course, they're going to honor the the gods of their ancestors and what's right there with them. The, the woman who was a slave turned into a god. So I just think mm-hmm. this kind of syncretism 
just makes sense in terms of the way people behave. Right. I, I a hundred percent agree with you. And it's a great point. And I like, I would be disappointed if Bioware came out and said, oh, they're all just the same. Like there's no distinction. There's no anything because I feel like that erases the like authentic world building that they have set up in this universe. I mean, this, and one of the reasons we made this podcast is this game and universe paints such a realistic picture of a world with multiple religions in it um and i don't want to see that go away just by the mm -hmm. fact of oh it's all the evan Urus. yes i completely agree i think it would be really disappointing to make everything elven um just, you know, we've talked about this a thousand times on the podcast before. I completely agree. And I think that it also, like, it's just not creative, um, in my opinion. But that is not why we're here. So let's talk about a couple trivia facts, and then we'll kind of close out. So the first trivia fact I want to talk about is, even though a Meriden builds this shrine to Gilanon, he does have Dirthamon's Valisleen. Interesting. Don't know why, but he does. And then the other trivia fact I have is that while Ameridan's memories indicate that he held no distrust of the humans of Orlay, like many of his fellow elves, he did hope to return from his journey to Hacken quickly so that he could help fight the second blight and rally the elves to help. He believed that unless the Dales stood with Orlay against the Darkspawn, they would lose everything that they'd gained. And he realized that the survival of Thetis really depended on every race fighting together to end this blight. And he's right, because the elves, when they, they don't help fight this blight, and it is, it's the start of the Exalted March on the Dales. That's what kind of starts the intense animosity between elves and humans of course there was there was animosity already but it ratchets up to another level after that and so he's right well, he's absolutely and, right and it's interesting to me because if i remember from my history and i know that we're going to do the blights in a future episode sometime uh but the future second season. blight yeah uh the second blight is when Draken basically turns and he goes, we have to weaponize the mages. We have to utilize them. And it's because the elves don't fight with them that they don't yeah. have the forces to do so. And like the Grey Wardens, I think then like they this creates the treaties. The elves not fighting in the second blight is such a pinnacle moment in like Thetis history that sets up a bunch of sets up the mages being in there, which then brings up the Navarin Accords, which then brings up all of the Templar, everything that we get can be, and then the exalted marches on the Dales, like all of this comes back, the problems of Thetis all come back to the second blight. And it's interesting, it's just kind of tragic that Ameridan is not here to guide his people in this. Um, it's kind of like how we talk about like how different Star Wars would be if Qui-Gon had survived the Battle of Naboo and like how he would have been able to guide Anakin in a different way. Imagine if in this moment, Ameridin, this he hero, this person who 
Mind's there command like says to the elves, like, we have to go fight. This is our survival. Imagine like how the world would be different. And it kind of comes into like why I love a Meriden is because of this, is because he's such this charismatic and good person. And I don't say this often because there's so much gray in Thetis and Dragon Age, but he's a good person. And I think that I really, really wish this had been a main game thing. And I really wish they had set this up in a way of maybe we lost the fight at Adamant Fortress. Like maybe we prevented like them binding a all the demons or whatever, but we lost bad at Adamant. Like the Grey Wardens were shattered, like all of this stuff. The Inquisitor has this huge defeat and is defeated and it is in that time that they go and they find about inquisitor emeritus i think the use of this like as an inspiration to inspire our character or our person to come and like really realize who we need to be in this state is important like the lessons we can learn from emeritus as inquisitor even even taking that all the way into um trespasser and to the exalted council yeah and all of that stuff of like collaboration of the races and all of this stuff like so much of like who the inquisitor needs to be is learning from who the first inquisitor was Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely and I, i think it is a wasted opportunity that we didn't get more of a meriden's wisdom in the game but one thing that i would love to see is a story about Inquisitor Emeritus and his time as Inquisitor. I think this era in Dragon Age lore is perfect for a TV show. And I know we just got a TV show like a year ago, but this would make an awesome story, whether it's a TV show or a movie or a book or whatever, something live action like this era is perfect like don't we don't want you to canonize any of our in-game decisions like give us more lore about these time periods that we don't know much about um and this would be a really awesome one to tackle right and like i know like it's called the dragon age so they like everything to now take place in the dragon age but like it's okay if you say oh this is the dragon age but it actually takes place in you know the divine age or whatever which i'm pretty sure that stolen throne takes place in the age before dragon blessed age yes it does yeah it doesn't matter nobody cares about that like give us a dragon (laughs) in the story instead but anyway we're way off topic we're done unless you have anything else to talk about today no, I think that's all we have. Uh, thanks for bringing this research again. These Evan Urs just keep getting more and more fascinating. Um, I uh, need to clear out my weekend when we record the Finn Harrell episode because we'll be here forever. Um, but thank you all for listening to the Dragon Age Lorecast. We will see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Dragon Age Lorecast. You can find us on Twitter at DA Lorecast. If you have any lore questions, topics to unpack, or side character suggestions, join our Cups Podcasting and More Discord server. It's easily the best place on the internet.
you can also support us financially through our Patreon. You can find us there on patreon.com slash dragonagelorecast. The Dragon Age Lorecast is part of the Robots Radio Network. For more information about the Robots Radio Network, join the Discord server via the link in our episode description. If you enjoyed the show or learned something new today, please subscribe, leave us a review, and join the Patreon. And if you enjoyed our intro and outro music, give a big thank you to Pipe Man Studios. Thank you, Pipe Man. Thanks again for listening to the Dragon Age Lorecast. We'll see you next time. Are you a fan of Elden Ring? Are you confused about the lore as pretty much everyone else? We've got you covered. Check out the Elden Archives, a lore podcast that helps to explain every little confusing detail about the lands between. Things like what exactly happened on the Night of the Black Knives, or what we really know about characters like Nicola. Just like the show you're listening to now, we're on the Robots Radio Network, so you know it'll be good. Wondering how to find the show? Easy. Either go to robotsradio.net or search Elden Archives on whatever podcatcher you're using right now. Bookmark the show for later, and we'll see you in the lands between. Again, that's The Elden Archives, a FromSoft Lorecast, available everywhere.